I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 46 today. I know that's kind of a long chunk of Scripture, it's a long passage, um, and maybe you have some, uh, some Sunday Memorial Day weekend plans. But this story is worth reading its entirety, but also it's one worth focusing on one piece at a time. And so we are going to do something a little bit different, and I just want to give you a heads up. We're not going to read all 30 verses all at once. We're going to read um, eight or nine verses at a time. We'll stop there, and then we'll pick it up again as the text moves through. And so if you're waiting for the, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, refrain, we actually won't do that today um, because we're going to move through these 30 verses, about eight or nine verses at a time. We continue following the ministry of Elijah at this point in time where Elijah has been both in the Kareth Ravine and then taking shelter from the drought with the widow at Zarephath. And now the word of the Lord has moved again. And it's time for confrontation. It's time for the showdown between Elijah as God's prophet and the prophets of Baal. So last week, Sunday... Elijah presented himself to Obadiah, a servant of Ahab, who is also a servant of the Lord. And Obadiah had to go and tell Ahab that Elijah is here. And so we're going to pick up exactly where we left off at the end of last week, where Ahab and Elijah finally come face to face once again as the word of the Lord continues to move. But before we come to God's word, let's pray together. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray. Lord, that these words may be illumined to us. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. And as we listen, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts upon your word may be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, O Lord, for we wait to hear a word from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 16. And we're just going to go verse 16 to 21. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel, and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. The people said nothing. When given this ultimatum, 
Now, there are times and places where we are given ultimatums that are false ultimatums, two choices when it's really not two choices. Sometimes we're given false dichotomies where we're presented A or B, but it's not just A or B. There are examples of that, but here in 1 Kings 18, this is a fitting ultimatum that Elijah has given to the people. It's one or the other. Stop waffling between the two or being half-hearted or half-foot in on each. If the Lord is God, if the Lord is God, follow him wholeheartedly with steadfast devotion, with faithfulness. But if Baal is God, then follow him. I love that line, though. Not because of what it represents, but because of the moment in time that identifies the people said nothing. They make no argument, they make no defense, because they are caught. They they are not willing to make a profession of faith for either side. And so they simply gathered with Elijah on Mount Carmel, they say nothing. They're just caught in the middle of their indecision. My dad used to always say to me, indecision is the worst decision, I think. And the people are caught in that same kind of indecision. They're not willing to make a profession of faith. Now, if you look at your bulletins, the sermon title for this week is taken from a verse a little bit later in our text. The Lord, he is God. If you believe that to be true, I invite you to say it with me. The Lord, he is God. One more time. The Lord, he is God. That is a profession of faith. And we as Christians believe that we make that profession of faith towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is God. Coexistent and co-eternal are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can make that profession of faith. We can make it a declaration, a confession, but an assurance from our hearts that the Lord, he is God. At this point in time, the people of Israel are not willing to make any such profession of faith. They're waiting for a sign. And this showdown on Mount Carmel that's about to happen is kind of like their litmus test. They won't put faith in God, the Lord their God, or Baal until they see how this turns out. They're waiting for a sign. They're waiting to see who is right. And Elijah, Elijah won't back down. As frustrated as Ahab might be by this drought that's been plaguing them for three years, by as frustrated as he might be as this prophet of the Lord known as Elijah, he accuses him of making trouble for Israel, but Elijah is not going to have any of that. No, not this day. Because Elijah has not been exempt from the consequences of the drought. Elijah has not been free from all of the suffering. He's experienced the drought, and it has grieved his heart as well. Not only the drought in the land, but the spiritual drought that Israel will not make a profession of faith, that the Lord, he is God. And so when Ahab suggests that Elijah is a troubler of Israel, Elijah shoots back at him. And I think he's just getting warmed up because he's going to do a ton of taunting throughout this text. But he puts it back on Ahab and says, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. 
Think back to how Ahab was introduced earlier in 1 Kings. His father was wicked, but then we're told that Ahab was essentially the most wicked king yet because he abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. And we know where that influence came from. And Elijah does put a little jab in on that too. The end of verse 19, he says, And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who sit at Jezebel's table. Remember that Jezebel is the wife of Ahab, and Jezebel is daughter of the king of Sidon. In the region of Sidon and Tyre is the heart and origin of Baal worship. It is the center point of cult secularism of that day's religion. Baal worship starts in Sidon and Tyre. But through Jezebel and Ahab, it has now become the state religion of Israel. And so no one's willing to say, the Lord, he is God, because that's not what they were told. But neither are they totally convinced and willing to say that Baal is God either, because for three years the land has been in drought. Now Maybe it's hard to see from this view from 50,000 feet, but three years of drought are about to be followed by rain by a rising again of the land and all that is green and good, not unlike Jesus spending three days in the tomb before he rose again. We follow threes and sevens and twelves throughout Scripture, and this text has all of them. But the people, when asked to make a profession of faith, when asked, who do you follow, whose disciple are you, the people said nothing. So let's pick up again verses 22 through 29. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, And I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Hmm. There was no response. No one answered, no one paid attention. Now at this moment, we have not yet proven to the people that the Lord, he is God. 
But what we have proven is that Baal is not. And Elijah, who has full faith and measure that the Lord, he is God, Elijah does a lot of taunting in this part. The things that he says, he's, he's letting them know that Baal is no God at all. Baal is not real. And in fact, he's maybe a little bit meaner and crude than what we would pick up on. Many, many of you know I much prefer Greek study over Hebrew, um, but the Hebrew study here is interesting. When, when Elijah suggests that Baal is deep in thought or busy, he is suggesting that he has been in the bathroom, which is kind of a crude thing to say about a deity. Surely he is a god. Surely he even exists at all. But maybe he's sleeping. You're just not shouting loud enough. I wonder what it would be like if we could travel in time, and I wonder about this a lot. I wonder what it would be like to travel in time and just to sit yourself on Mount Carmel and watch this scene unfold. We, I think we would be terrified to watch the spectacle of 450 prophets of Baal dancing and shouting and slashing themselves with swords and spears as a blood offering, as a way to entice Baal to come down to show their loyalty and devotion by the shedding of their blood. Not to be mentioned that it's not our blood that was shed, but for us, it was Christ Jesus who shed his blood for us. That we didn't have to shout louder to, for God to pay attention to us, but that we simply need to quiet ourselves that we might pay attention to God. But nonetheless, for us to be watching this scene unfold, it would be terrifying. And then to know, in all of this chaos, of all the shouting and the dancing and the yelling and the screaming and pleading, there's this man off to the side who looks the same way that we would imagine John the Baptist to look, some wilderness man who wandered out of nowhere, who's just sitting back, laughing at the spectacle, who's taunting these prophets who are getting frantic. They are frantically prophesying. There's Elijah waiting for his moment, waiting that there is no way that this contest could be said to be unfair, that the prophets of Baal had all the time that they needed for their God to answer them, that the prophets of Baal got to pick their own bull first. There is no way to accuse Elijah of cheating. And it's an interesting contest. Prepare an altar, a sacrifice to a god, but don't light fire to it. At first reading, I, I got a little bit confused on why the prophets of Baal would take Elijah up on this in the first place. Because Baal sends rain upon the earth. So how would you expect the god of rain to send fire? Except Baal, in, in a larger scope, is actually the god of the storm. He's the god of storm. So what the prophets of Baal are waiting and praying and hoping for is a bolt of lightning in just the right place to light the altar on fire. They're waiting for Baal, the storm god, who seems powerless to send rain on the earth, but maybe, just maybe, Baal can send a bolt of lightning to light the altar on fire that the sacrifice might be offered. And as Elijah has said, the God who responds by fire, he is God. But Elijah is not reliant on any kind of superstition around God. Because Elijah could go back to the word of the Lord. He could go back to the written word of the law. Deuteronomy 4.24. 
describes God himself saying, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, a consuming fire. A consuming fire. This is what Elijah is waiting to see happen, that the Lord will respond with fire because he is a consuming fire. Now, we're going to see that unfold very literally in a little bit. But metaphorically, why would God describe himself as a jealous God, as a consuming fire? Fire is indiscriminate. It claims everything that it touches if left unhindered. Everything that fire touches belongs to the fire. In the same way, everything the light touches is our kingdom. Although God could say that more confidently than Mufasa, just in case you caught the Lion King reference. Fire consumes everything in its path. Fire does not stop. And it's that same theology of God being a consuming fire metaphorically that is used in a psalm like Psalm 24. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and all who live in it. Meaning anything that God can touch, which is all of us when we were created, we were touched by God. Everything that is in the earth belongs to the Lord. For he is a jealous God. He gathers all things to himself, for they are his. And he is a consuming fire. Everything belongs to God. Every single person, every single soul. The very bulls that are being offered, the wood that they're gathered on, belongs to God. Except for the prophets of Baal. Baal is not a consuming fire. Baal is a myth, and because he is nothing more than a myth, no one responds, no one answers, and no one pays attention. And they've been at this all day. We'll pick up at verse 30, which is the turning of the tide, verses 30 through 39. Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it out on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The profession of faith 
has now been made. That the Lord, he is God, because fire has descended from earth, from heaven to earth, sorry. And it has consumed everything, just as the word of the Lord said in Deuteronomy 4.24, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, an all-consuming fire. For the fire came down from heaven, not a single bolt of lightning that could light the fire and let the wood take its course as fuel, but an all-consuming fire that came down and took everything, even the water in the trench. Not only did Elijah set this up to give the prophets of Baal every advantage, he gave them first pick on the bulls, he gave them more time, but he also doused his offering in water, and even the water was consumed. Even the water was licked up out of the trench by the Lord who is the all-consuming fire. And of course, we're, we're told in the text that as he repaired the altar of the Lord, which Ahab and Jezebel had taken down, he used 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. And 12 times was a jar of water poured, four different jugs, three different times. 12 times was this sacrifice baptized before it was consumed. 12 times over, it was washed and anointed before the fire from heaven came down and took up everything. What was written in Deuteronomy 4.24 about the Lord being an all-consuming fire was made true in a very literal sense in 1 Kings 18. In the same way, I think the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, uses that same description of God as an all-consuming fire, drawing on the history from the law to the prophets to Pentecost itself, which we celebrate next week, when not fire is offered up, but when tongues of fire descend on all of God's servants to equip them. The Lord, he is God. At last the people make their profession of faith. The Lord, he is God. They do so in a moment of excitement and, and, and just an epic proportion of God's power being shown before them. And there is no doubt in their minds that the Lord, he is God. The one who responded with fire is the Lord, and he is God. But I can't help but wonder how long that profession of faith will last. How deeply rooted and solid is it in their souls? We're going to finish with verses 40 through 46. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, and don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, Go back, go back, go back, go back, go back, go back, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. 
Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came to Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Once again, I can't quite picture what this looked like, and I wish we could time travel and take a glimpse of what it would look like to see Elijah becoming the world's first and best cross-country runner, tucking his cloak into his belt and outrunning a chariot. But I also wonder what's going on in Ahab's mind as he's in that chariot. Elijah, who decreed the drought, has now told him, go eat and drink, for the heavy rain is coming. Think about in a drought where your food would be rationed out. You wouldn't want to eat or drink too much because you're waiting for the rains for the harvest to be able to come. And now, if the drought's going to be over, you can eat, drink, and be merry, for food will be plentiful again. And so Ahab goes off to Jezreel. But I wonder what else was in Ahab's mind. How did this show of God's power affect him? As he now goes back and will soon see his wife Jezebel, who uh, they just killed all 450 of Baal's prophets who were under Jezebel's hand. I imagine things will not be so good at home for Ahab. One more thing for him to think about on his chariot ride from Carmel to Jezreel. But more importantly than one person, though he is king, and he should be leading as such, more importantly than that is the measure of repentance that is given us here. Seven times Elijah tells his servant to go back and to look for a rain cloud. Now, to go back is to turn around. Now, this is the most literal understanding, the origin of the word for repentance, is to turn around. To turn around. And not just one or two times, but seven times. A seven being a number of completion and fullness. Seven times to go back. This is not Elijah having the same kind of frantic prophesying that the prophets of Baal had, where they had to keep shouting louder and more and more frantically. This is Elijah, who apparently has gotten seated in the fetal position with his hands between with his face between his knees, and he's waiting. And seven times his servant has to turn. Not the whole nation of Israel, mind you, although that's what it should be. But to turn seven times is a symbol of complete and total repentance. To turn away from all that hinders and distracts and misleads and deceives us. To turn away from all of that completely and fully. To focus centrally and singularly on the Lord. For the Lord, he is God. It's that same prayer that Elijah has that he offered right before the fire came down from heaven. In verse 37, Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. That verse is um, said over and over in the song, Again, which you have to sing at least twice because the song's name is Again. You are turning their hearts back again. Again. That's why that is our kind of theme song for this series with the word of the Lord. 
for people to turn their hearts back again. It's symbolized with Elijah's servant. And it's been professed by the people on Mount Carmel that the Lord is God. But will it be complete? Will it be lasting? This total and full repentance, if you're familiar with the rest of 1 Kings, does not last. Even this sight that we would long to behold of fire coming down from heaven and consuming the altar, the difference that that would make, it is not permanent. Because signs lose their meaning over time. People forget things. Think about how many things the people of Israel have already forgotten by the time Ahab is king. They've forgotten about the ten plagues in Egypt. They've forgotten about the Passover. They've forgotten about how the Lord their God had led them across the Red Sea on dry ground. They'd forgotten about the manna from heaven that fell to sustain them in the wilderness. They'd forgotten about the crossing of the Jordan and the falling of the walls of Jericho. They had forgotten, 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 forgotten. We forget. And so even the most epic and grandiose signs don't last if we don't remember them. Very fitting to think about Memorial Day. Many of us as families have cemeteries to visit on a weekend like this to go by and see gravestones because we do not want to forget and we do this because we are a people who are prone to forgetfulness. And not only to forget those who we care about, but what about those moments where we forget all that the Lord our God has done for us? That our profession of faith, like the nation of Israel, grows weak because the Lord, he is God, just isn't on our lips because we can't remember what God has done for us. Jesus is very well aware of our human condition. Jesus knows how quickly we forget and how signs even as great as Mount Carmel don't last. Jesus, in Matthew 24, warns the people about false messiahs and false prophets who will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect meaning even God's chosen people might be brought away by signs and wonders performed by false prophets and false messiahs. Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 48, in a moment where he's about to heal someone as he does these things out of love and compassion and out of a show of God's power, even as he's about to do so, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. From John 4, 48. People seem to need signs and wonders, but they also don't last. And they don't have the desired effect. And remember how Jezebel is from Sidon in the region of Tyre? That's mentioned again in Matthew 11. Maybe a detail that we would pass right by if we weren't so familiar with 1 Kings. But in Matthew 11, verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Then he makes the same comparison between Capernaum and Sodom. Jesus is saying if Tyre and Sidon, if, if the origin of Baal worship that led the people astray, if the, the hometown of Jezebel, if they would have seen signs and wonders, they might have believed and repented in sackcloth and ashes. But not so. Signs and wonders only go so far. They can be forgotten. They can lose their effect. Or maybe it leaves us like a high waiting for a fix of another sign and wonder. And that's why I think of all of Jesus' teachings on signs and wonders after the resurrection, which is the sign and wonder of hope and the foundation of our faith. Jesus in John chapter 20 told Thomas, who always needs a sign, who always needs evidence, Jesus in John 20, verse 29, told Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believed what? That the Lord, he is God. Thomas, Thomas believed because he saw. But blessed are those who see or do not see and yet have believed. I don't know where you're at in your faith journey. Maybe there's a sign or wonder that you're waiting for. Maybe there's a prayer request that you have that you think it would be easier to believe in God and to refresh yourself in believing in God if you got the sign and wonder you were asking for. But Jesus, as he taught us about signs and wonders, as he reflected full well in these stories from the Old Testament that he knows better than we do, Jesus reminds us that the signs and wonders are not the foundation for our faith. It's not what you're going to see or what will be demonstrated, but it is that central profession of saying, the Lord, he is God. We can rest secure in that even in times where our faith wavers and times where it is solid. The Lord, he is God. This remains true, and the signs and wonders are icing on the cake, but they're not the foundation on which we believe and profess we're not waiting for Baal versus the Lord to show up. We're not watching for whose prophets are successful. We rest in that central profession. And I invite you to say it with me one more time. The Lord, he is God. In the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, you give us signs and wonders as confirmation, as encouragement, as reminders that we remember this day that it is not the foundation of our faith, but the one sign and wonder, the centerpiece, is remembering this day that you died upon the cross for us, for our sins and for our salvation. May we remember that as central and in so doing, hold unwaveringly and faithfully to that profession of faith that you, O Lord, are God. Be with us. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen us when we are feeble and frail. And help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to hold unwaveringly to our profession. For you, O Lord, are God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.